I'm Zach DePrima, and with me this week is my dear friend, Dr. Pastor Aaron Menikoff. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Aaron Menikoff is the pastor of Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And prior to his ministry at Mount Vernon, he served on the staff of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Aaron himself, he holds his Ph.D. from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And Aaron is the founder of Feed My Sheep, which is an annual conference for pastors and church leaders in Georgia. Aaron, you're married to Dina, uh, am I correct? That is right. And how many children do you and Dina have? We got four kids. Anything other? 18 to 10. We just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. Ah. And uh, I'm really thankful for her. Any other relevant life details that people should know? Uh, no. All righty. You're an Oregonian? I am, uh, well, I was born in Hawaii and mm-hmm. I grew up in Oregon. Okay. So I spent a lot more time in Oregon than Hawaii. Um, and I'm wearing an Oregon sweatshirt right now. Very nice. Well, I mentioned uh, in that little bio that you uh, have had experience at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, uh, as well as Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And you've been pastor of Mount Vernon for what, 12 years now? Yeah, just over 12 years. Uh, All those churches, uh, many would describe those works at some point as church revitalizations. And that's a topic of of what we want to be discussing today. Now, when... when Shouldn't we be talking about hymns? Oh, well, we'll get there. Don't you worry. Uh, When we talk about the topic of church revitalization, uh, a topic to which hymns play a big role and the singing of the church play a big role. All the churches that I've been a part of that are revitalization works, we have sung hymns. Very nice. What are we talking about when we use the phrase church revitalization? Well, it is a little uh, tricky because if you're the church that's being revitalized, you often don't like to be referred to as a revitalization project. You know, the members who are there are thinking, well, we're still here and we're still praying and we're, we're still gathering. But, you know, generally speaking, if you're going into a church and you understand it to be a revitalization work, Uh, You're assuming there's a few things that need to be revitalized. Maybe it's the church needs to grow in its understanding of the significance of theology. Uh, It's often the case that over the years, maybe even since its founding, uh, they haven't kept really an accurate sense of who the members are. Mm. And so as time has gone on, the church has quite literally lost its identity to the extent that they don't know who their members are, hmm. uh, or they've got, you know, you, they've got um, members who are really just straying from the Lord, and they don't know what to do with it. So, a lack of maybe interest in theology, uh, a lack of carefulness about church membership. Uh, also, uh, I think a common denominator is maybe a fuzziness with regards to, you know, church leadership. Hmm. So. I remember when I got to Mount Vernon, uh, I got there in the summer of 2008, about the time that they were uh, in the process of recommending and electing new deacons. Right. And when they communicated to the church what to be looking for in recommending a deacon, they actually uh, submitted the qualifications of an elder. 
Mm-hmm. So, and I don't think they were doing that because they understood deacons to be functioning as elders. Right. I just think they weren't reading, you know, the Bible very carefully on matters of leadership. So, a revitalization work, you know, it's going to have some areas that need to be shored up. Yeah, theologically, when it comes to uh, ecclesiology, mm-hmm. and in its in its worst form, there are some churches that are on the cusp of losing the gospel. Mm -hmm. I haven't been at a church that was that far gone, but I've known some, I've I've known some brothers who have been at churches like that. And so revitalization has been a matter of really praying that the the church doesn't uh, go apostate. Do you find in these revitalization contexts that the churches, um, their own self-assessment and perspective of themselves is much different than the would-be pastor, candidate, man coming in? Oh, inevitably. Inevitably. I mean, I think we're all like that. I think both bodies of people and individuals rarely see themselves clearly. Yeah. What are some common maybe points of misunderstanding and, and misperception between both of those parties? Well, I think from the vantage point of the uh, the pastor coming in, one misconception is that what he's walking into is all bad. Hmm. Um, one misconception could be because these individuals don't have a love for hymns the way I have a love for hymns, um, they don't have a love for the Lord. Yeah. When maybe they were just never discipled in some very basic ways. So on the part of the pastor, there can be a lack of charity. Hmm. And on the part of the congregation that is in need of some revitalization or reformation, a lack of humility, Hmm. a lack of uh, really understanding that there are some profound ways that we we do need to change. Mm -hmm. And not simply so that we can attract some more millennial families. Right. Um, some change, some ways that we need to change that are that are more substantive. Yeah. And usually, the congregation is probably a little bit mixed. Mm-hmm. There are some people who really see that, and others who are are um, are, are blind to the need for change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find there are often. I've had the opportunity to do pulpit supply in, in some churches uh, in in our area here, and one thing I notice with churches that are in decline, that are looking for a new pastor or something like that, that are somewhat aware, at least on some level, that we're in decline, uh, that we need some sort of new life. There are um, some churches that are really motivated by gospel healthy change and want that. And then there are some churches that just want to sort of preserve their way of life. And uh, is that a distinction you kind of notice and see being in different churches? Uh, so the distinction you're drawing is between those who just sort of want to keep going yeah. and those who really want to see robust yeah, gospel-centered some, change some, in yeah, their midst. Yeah, some that know, hey, there, there's some things culturally, there's some things philosophically that, that we need to change. And then there are some that think, oh, as long as we get the right man in there, we just need the new man uh, to, to bring new and infuse new life in our church. I mean, I think the interesting thing is, is, um, uh, is how one views change. Mm. So... Uh, there are some who think, well, we need to get a new man in there because maybe he's younger. Maybe he's going to help us change the way we do music. And yeah. if we do music differently, all of a sudden we are going to be more um, attractive to the younger generation. So they want they want change, but the change they want is is pragmatic, and mm. they're they're really relying upon the same philosophy of ministry that they're 
maybe their parents had, yeah, you know, or their grandparents had. So that's not the change that I mean. I I would argue not not that you know they might not need to change. They might need to change in how they do music, and they might need to change in in how they relate to their community. But generally speaking, the change that that that, that I want to talk about is going back to those old truths. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily not necessarily the old hymns, yeah. but the old truths that, uh, that, that God's word faithfully preached is going to do a remarkable work. Mm-hmm. And the commitment to that old truth is at the heart of church revitalization. Mm-hmm. And it's something that was lost in so many churches yeah. in the 20th century. Yeah. Yeah, and it is such an old truth. It's older than the Reformation, but it definitely was central to the Reformation itself, that that uh, uh, on the Word of God, uh, we're, we're building this foundation. Right, right. And, and seeking to reform something that, that ultimately is a good thing. Mm-hmm. I went to Southern Seminary for, for my MDiv, as did, as did you. Uh, when I talked to many of my seminary friends, and we talked to people that— uh, are looking for leaders, pastors. There's usually a few different veins men go into. That's either going to a traditionally or going to an already established church. Many men are going into planting churches, church planting. Many men are going to the mission field, and many men and more and more men are talking about church revitalizing mm-hmm. uh, or church reform. And it's very encouraging that that I I see less and less men spurning that work because it's such an important work. I think your life is is proof positive of that. But what would you say has been the, the most is is generally the most challenging about church revitalizing? Well, can I just say to back up a little bit? Yeah. It, it is interesting because uh, I was in seminary in the uh, early two thousands, mm-hmm. and so I think I was on the um, the uh, the tail's end of sort of the. The brass ring for a lot of seminarians was pastoring that megachurch, mm, mm-hmm. and um, and I remember I remember Danny Aiken at Southeastern Seminary talking about this a few years ago when he visited Mount Vernon, and he was talking with a group of pastors, and and his observation being in the seminary world longer than I have is that things have changed. Yeah. So whereas. My generation, the previous generations, they were eager to pastor a megachurch. Well, now you've got, I think a lot of, for a lot of people, the brass ring is going to be more of what you see at maybe uh, the summit, where you've got, okay, I want to pastor uh, a lot of a lot of gatherings. I mm-hmm. want to do kind of a multi-site thing. Yeah. The multi-site wasn't so much on the radar screen when, um, when I was there. Although it's what I experienced in D.C., but I think you're right. Now I am observing a lot of brothers who are excited about going into a church that already exists and bringing a kind of reformation and revival to an existing congregation. And uh, even though it's challenging, uh, when you when you're living in a in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity, yeah. And you're in. You're thinking about being in pastoral ministry for the long term. Uh, it's nice to have a place to meet. Yeah. And so one very pragmatic thing I believe a lot of pastors are looking to is uh, is how can I uh, how can I be at a place that I can be meeting very practically and, yes. and have my head covered. But I think for at a at a deeper and more gospel centered level, 
are the things that I've heard my former pastor talk about so much, Mark Dever, which is the possibility of reclaiming hmm. a gospel witness. Hmm. So what was at one time a church on the corner proclaiming the gospel and being a refuge for you know, the, the, the lost who recognizes they needed something but didn't know what it was, and here, here's, this go- here's this church ready to tell them. Now this, some of those church buildings are on the cusp, quite literally, of becoming mosques hmm. you know, in, in the United States. Hmm. And so to be able to recapture those buildings and reinstall gospel preaching it may be really hard, mm-hmm. but uh, I think few things are better. Hmm. Well, you answered a very question, good question that I didn't ask. The question that I did ask, was what do you find most challenging about church revitalizing? So you want me to a- you want me to answer the questions you're asking? Yes, yeah, that, that's sort of the idea we're going for. Okay, here. what's most <laughs> challenging? Oh, there are so many things that are challenging about it. Um, I mean, perhaps I didn't ask it because we already talked about it. Yeah. I mean, if you've got a congregation that doesn't see itself in need of revitalization. Hmm. That's really hard because mm. you're walking in and uh, you sort of need to tell the patient, the patient needs surgery and the patient thinks, no, I just need, you know, a therapeutic massage and I'm going to be good to go. Right. So it's not, it's not a fun thing mm. to go and, and give the patient the diagnosis. So that's a huge challenge. You know, uh, again, in my desire to answer the questions that you're asking, um, non-Christians in leadership, Hmm. you know, for a church revitalizer Hmm. is a problem. I mean, I think that a lot of church, I think sometimes we overstate the differences between church planting and church revitalizing. Yes. However, by and large, I think a good church planter is at least able to make sure as best as he he can that th- those people coming into the church and those people in le- who are going to be in leadership they genuinely know the Lord. Mm. In a church revitalization that's not always the case. Mm. You'll have people who were the the banker or the lawyer uh just with a lot of uh, leadership savvy who over the years rose up through the, the leadership ranks of the church and now trying to bring revitalization to the church and work through someone with, I mean, honestly, a different worldview. Yeah. That's, that's probably the hardest thing. Yeah. What's most rewarding about church revitalizing? Well, I mean, for me, I feel, I don't just feel so blessed. I am blessed to have been a part of three revitalization works and in different roles in each of those yeah Can i you mean speak it, to what what you were doing in each of those well i mean i started just as a as a member of mm-hmm. uh, of capitol baptist church i joined in 1994 uh i went on staff towards the end of 1996 and um though i was certainly actively involved in the church when it comes to what Mark Dever was doing in leading that church in a revitalization process, I was a faithful church member growing as a Christian and kind of a fly on the wall. Yeah. But when we, when my wife and I moved to uh, Louisville, Kentucky in 2000 to join Third Avenue Baptist, uh, you know, that was a very small church. It was a dying church. There was a young group of seminarians and we moved into, we were in the city for the city. Mm-hmm. And, um, joining the church and there, you know, I was a deacon, I was an elder at Capitol Hill, one of the first elders there, same thing 
at Third Avenue, but at Third Avenue, you know, we needed to sort of lead the way in bringing revitalization to the church. Mount Vernon in Atlanta, where I pastor now, was actually pretty different Mm -hmm. because um, it wasn't as obviously on the decline. Um, It was, but it was a larger church. Um, It still had a lot of resources uh, uh, with regard to its facility, with regards to its finances. And so it was a little bit more difficult. Capitol Hill and Third Avenue knew that something radical needed to change or they were going to shut their doors. That wasn't as obvious in Atlanta. And just seeing how in all these three locations, uh, the, the gospel faithfully preached uh, did a miraculous work of mm-hmm. Reformation revitalization. Mm-hmm. I've walked away going, it really isn't about me. It's not right. fundamentally about the giftings of the pastor. Yeah. Though, you know, elders need to be gifted. They need to be able to teach. Mm-hmm. It really is about the Word of God doing the work. So that is hands down the most re- rewarding part of being a part of being a part of a revitalization work. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said a, a moment ago, you know, m- many of my friends are, are looking to go into ministry. You, you shepherd a lot of men that are on the cusp of entering in um, some sort of pastoral ministry, whether it's uh, going to the mission field, whether it's going, uh, getting involved in church planting, or, or maybe starting in some sort of, I hate to use this phrase, but like entry-level position in an established church. What's, what's the elevator pitch you have for um for encouraging those men to consider revitalizing. And I would also ask with that, do you perceive that there's a need for more pastors and would-be pastors and lay people to consider this worthy work? Yeah, I mean, I think that my, my, I'm, I'm most interested in knowing whether or not a man is qualified to be an elder. Uh, that is, like, let's forget about where you're going to be five years from now. Right. And let's just think about your personal qualifications for ministry today. That's huge. And then I also would like to know whether or not that man is unusually suited to preach the gospel. Because that's going to, that's going to tell me whether or not uh, he's the type of man that that people want to listen to, mm-hmm. which is certainly closely tied up with with uh, his ability to teach. But it's it, I'm looking for sli- something just slightly different, slightly more than that. Right. Um, and then only after that do we start thinking about where is this going to take place. Mm-hmm. Now, some men have a unique burden. They know maybe a man says, I want to plant a church in Seattle, Washington yeah. for X, Y, and Z reasons. Mm-hmm. And that burden may be so strong that it's going to be really difficult to get this man to do anything else. Nonetheless, I think we need to we need to hold loosely as men pursuing ministry. We need to hold loosely to where we're going to do that ministry and be fairly open to where God opens a door. And so then there becomes this this balance, this tension between our heart's desire. So mm-hmm. from in my case, mm-hmm. it was to revitalize a church in Portland, Oregon. Right. And where God opened a door, which in my case was uh, a church in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, there's a lot that happened to get me to Atlanta. And I, I, I don't want to speak against the man who overcomes any obstacles to get where, where he thinks 
the gospel needs to be. I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for that. But I just want to encourage us to be to recognize that God moves his people where he wants them. Hmm. And so let's, through counsel, through prayer, uh, and through providence, be, be, be open to consider places that maybe aren't at the top of our list right now. And so for a lot of young men, maybe revitalization isn't at the top of their list. But, but, but maybe God has put a revitalization work right in front of them. Consider it. Now, that's not an elevator speech, but mm -hmm. that's roughly what I would say. Very good. Can you talk about the, the churches you've been in, uh, the role singing has played and, and hymns, um, but particularly just congregational singing, uh, how you presumably saw singing improve in those churches over the years, and also how singing could be a device, a tool to infuse life into a church? You know, I don't know. I mean, I know this is hymn talk, H-Y-M-N. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, and I think it's a great question. As I, as I go back to my first experience in a, a solid church, I don't really remember the singing. If, for example, at Capitol Hill right. Baptist Church in 1994. But what I do remember that was distinctly different than what I experienced at a... Um, uh, at two mega churches. Now, mm -hmm. Oregon doesn't have nearly as many churches, but they've got a lot more charismatic type churches yeah. in the Pacific Northwest for various historical reasons. So I was part of the Foursquare Movement, mm -hmm. which is a long story founded by Amy Selma McPherson hmm. in the early 1900s in Los Angeles. And that denomination still exists. I was never a member of these churches, but that's where I attended because that's where you know I was saved. And in, in both of these churches I was a part of, the whole corporate worship experience appeared at the time designed to create within me a kind of emotional response to the music, to the message. And as a, as a young man in my 20s, I didn't really know how to critique that. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I would say it didn't feel right. At times, especially in um, college group gatherings, I was uncomfortable. It seemed like the, the 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 music leaders wanted me to be doing something, you know, with my body, like standing or raising my hands or kneeling, and I could never quite figure out exactly what they wanted. And so the f the thing that I noticed when I went to uh, to Capitol Hill Baptist in the '90s was I didn't feel that that kind of pressure to respond emotionally, but I felt a lot of pressure to engage with God's word hmm. and to be to be conformed into the into to a greater degree into the image of his son. So there was pressure there, but it it, it was a pressure that was simply from the word being preached. Mm -hmm. And from the word being sung. Yeah. And for me as a young believer, that was very refreshing. And then over time, uh, I began to appreciate uh, that corporate worship is 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 singing great theology, and uh, and I know I, it took a number of years for me to really grow in that area. And now I've seen congregations grow in that area. Mm -hmm. And um, in the congregation that I serve now, the music was very different mm -hmm. uh, in two thousand and eight mm -hmm. than it is today. I mean, when I got there in two thousand eight. Yeah, there were some hymns that, you know, they liked to sing in large part because there were so many 
seniors in the congregation who loved Fanny Crosby and they wanted right. kind of that that kind of uh, uh, early 20th century or mid 20th century yeah. hymnody. But there was also this sense that the Vineyard Movement had something going, mm-hmm. and so they wanted to try to find a way to blend the Vineyard Movement with Fanny Crosby. And can I just go on record saying that doesn't work? <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't a pleasant experience. Yeah. And it, it, it to but to to the credit of Mount mm-hmm. Vernon and all the brothers and sisters involved in that, mm-hmm. they had made a decision before I got there that they were going to have one style of corporate worship. Mm-hmm. And I give them a lot of credit for that because all around them in Atlanta were churches that were absolutely committed to saying, we're going to have the contemporary service at nine o'clock. You know, we're going to have the traditional service at 1030 and we're going to have the the the, 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 the modern rock out service. Right. And Mount Vernon said no. So even as I'm saying that the Vineyard Movement and Fanny Crosby didn't mix, at least they said we want it. We want Worship us all to be in the room together, yeah. and we're going to try. Yeah. And I thought that was a, a step in the right direction. But mm-hmm. then, as the years have gone by, we've embraced uh, singing older hymns and singing newer hymns, and uh, and it's gone really well. And I think the congregation sings wonderfully. Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, I'm, I don't have near as much experience, but I find that if you're a church that's going to commit yourself to congregational singing as one of the most important elements of, of your church's music, that is the voices of God's people, that is what we are trying to adorn rather than some sort of performance or, or big production, it will not often be the part of your church's service that people come away talking about on their first visit. But over time, it will have a, a, a seeping effect upon visitors and people that join your church. And they realize, wow, the, the content of these songs and the voices of my brothers and sisters are doing a discipling work in my life. Yeah, I mean, I have no idea how many people self-select out of the assessment process. Right. In other words, I don't know how many people have come to Mount Vernon, and I've never talked to them because they sat through one service and we sang, you know, a mighty fortress, you know, is our God, and and they thought they were in their grandmother's church, if right. their grandmother saying that, and uh, and never came back. So I don't know, and and presumably there's a few, mm-hmm. but just a month ago there was a young couple who came to Mount Vernon, and they said to me. Uh, well, we're just, we, we, we loved being here so much. Um, it just seems so unprofessional. Hmm, and mm-hmm. then they felt embarrassed. Like they yeah. just kind of criticized yeah. us. Like, oh, that was fine. I and mean, yeah. we appreciate, we know exactly what you mean. Yeah. You know, it's not a production. And, uh, and you know, our, all of our, we call them ensemble leaders, yes. but the, the, the brothers in this case who lead the ensemble on Sunday morning. Well, the, none of them are in the paid employee of the church. Right. One gets a stipend for organizing, you know, the music for us uh, and scheduling things, but they're all volunteering mm-hmm. and they do an amazing job. But, you know, every once in a while, they'll mess up. Yeah. And kind of like every once in a while when I'm preaching and I am in the paid employee of the church, I'll mess up. <laughs> and it's okay because we're not a show. We're yeah. a bunch of brothers and sisters each with different gifts, doing our best. And um, and it has kind of a, I think it's got a, a gritty 
real feel to it, which I think is attractive to a lot of believers who don't want to show. Yeah, it reminds me of the favorite compliment that I, I get. I've gotten more than a few times at Emmanuel Church, and that's, we love how, how you guys just don't put that much into the music here. <laughs> like, we just, we, we appreciate it. And they're sincere when they say that, but it, in a similar vein to, to what you said, it's, it's a little more homebrewed. It, we haven't professionalized that, that part of our ministry. But at the same time, what they also comment on, mm-hmm. and I've experienced this in three cities now, and I observed it because I was, I gathered with you this morning at your church, Emmanuel Church of Winston-Salem, uh, they observe how carefully selected and appropriate hmm. all the music and all the scripture readings and all the aspects of the corporate worship service, how it all seemed to fit together and helped them uh, engage with God with their brothers and sisters mm, in Christ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So even today at Emmanuel of Winston-Salem, right, we read Psalm 19 mm, mm-hmm. or had it read to us. And then you led us in a hymn that's new to me. Was mm. this a Matt Papa? song no that was straight out of a scottish psalter and we found a traditional tune for it okay yeah. that's right that's right the song the the mad papa one was a, a oh, song that was song 42 that yeah. was song 42 Sorrows, yeah so i'm i'm sitting there just i'm i'm a participant i've gathered mm-hmm. with you mm-hmm. but i was helped by having by hearing psalm 19 and then singing psalm 19 yeah so i think these and at least in my in the in the, in the experience I've had at these revitalization works, so much work hmm. does go into praying for praying and selecting appropriate uh, lyrics and appropriate music to go with that lyrics, and um, and and God's people notice that, yeah. and they are they're discipled in that process. Well, Aaron, we can go on, but we should move to our hymn of the podcast. And as we're talking about revitalization, uh, I thought an appropriate hymn for us to discuss is the hymn Reformation Song. I believe this was written maybe two or three years ago, and it is a hymn by uh, Tim Chester and Bob Coughlin. I'm sure it was written for the 500th anniversary of the it was. Reformation. Yeah, it was. And uh, this is a this is a wonderful hymn that that we commend to you. And, and essentially, uh, this song it's a thoughtful and, and concise exposition of the solas that mark the Protestant Reformation. Now, Aaron, off the top of your head, you know what the solas are. What are we talking about? This is, I mean, what's so interesting about the solas, of course, is that we can't pinpoint like a sermon from the 16th century. I thought where Luther these, preached that in 1517. These, yeah, yeah. Those are the five points of his sermon that but, he preached. But, but genuinely, when you look at the, the preaching of Luther mm-hmm. and of Calvin, and and you you uncover the theology. I mean, what you discover is that they bled. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, mm-hmm. and for the glory of God alone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you said at the beginning of the podcast that, that we we know that these ideas are biblical. Yeah before they're reformational. But you are not going to have a biblical reformation without the conviction that um, that God's work is in, in our lives for our mm-hmm. salvation is monergistic. It is his work. Mm-hmm. And he gets the glory for it. And so um, 
there is it there is something that is simply exhilarating about both discovering these truths but to your point in the reformation song it's a joy to sing them. Yeah. Do you want to sing it for us? Well, uh, not right now. Why not? Uh, because I don't have a lovely singing voice and my guitar is not with me. Uh, Chester and Coughlin, we sing a few songs of theirs. I, I've just found them to be gifts to gifts to our church and, and the church more broadly. But each verse of this hymn, it summarizes and celebrates uh, each of those solas. Uh, so there, there are four verses in the song and uh, those cover four solas. But the refrain is uh, a shout of praise of glory to God alone. One question I thought about this hymn, Aaron, uh, and you, you can answer this briefly, but do you think it's a healthy thing for a church to be outspoken about its Protestant part- partisanship on a, on a Sunday morning for just an evangelical church or, or you know, gathering God's people? I, I think of, you know, I'm a Calvinist, but I don't go around preaching Calvinism and talking about Calvinism in, in every sermon. Do you, do you think it's healthy and, and a fine thing for us to sing a song like this in uh, gathered worship? Uh, yeah, I do. I, I mean, I do think there's something uh, unifying yeah. about the five solas. Yeah. So I know that um, I know that there's going to be uh, disagreement in evangelical camps over the extent of the atonement mm-hmm. and. Um, those are discussions that are, are worth having, um, but as as uh, uh, certainly as a Baptist, uh, I am part of a tradition. Yes. I am part of a Protestant tradition. Yes, and uh, so I am. I'm not allergic at all to to talking about that. I think the the key is if the flavor of one's church. Uh, I, I, I am not an adherent of no creed but the Bible. Right. And there are Baptists in America who have that history. And, yeah. and I think that's unhelpful. But mm. I do want to be known for fidelity to Scripture yes. more than I'm known for fidelity to any any description of the, of a system of scripture. Yes. So I think the five solas can be, in a sense, abused right. by teachers uh, but so long as that's not happening, uh, I think we have we have profited by singing the Reformation song, and I think it's great. Well, yeah, friends, I would encourage you to look up this song, be edified by it, but introduce it to your church. As far as Emmanuel is concerned, this is a favorite. Um, if, if our people could have their way, we would do this song every week or every other week. Uh, It's just been a wonderful, wonderful gift to our congregation. But with that, for this episode, we are out of time. Aaron, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.